0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for August 19th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morris, the Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, in the past, we've talked about social measures for reducing transmission, things like masking, social distancing, quarantine, isolation, testing. We haven't talked much about contact tracing. What do we know about the usefulness of contact tracing in general for infectious diseases? So
1: Steve, contact tracing has been used for a long time. It dates to the relatively early 20th century and really was initially applied to sexually transmitted infections. My only relative who was a physician was my great uncle, Paul, who was in medical school during the depression and was looking for a job when he got out and joined the public health service where he served in rural Tennessee. And his job seemed to consist largely of doing contact tracing for STIs. It was a difficult job, as you could imagine. He was chased off of many properties with a shotgun, apparently, but certainly it was well entrenched at that point, both in civilian life and in military life. And contact tracing for diseases like STIs remains the standard today. But other diseases are still largely controlled by contact tracing. Those include diarrheal diseases and other enteric diseases like typhoid fever and certain respiratory infections like meningococcal infection. In parts of the world, contact tracing is also important for controlling HIV.
0: It strikes me that contact tracing has two parts, finding the contacts and then doing something once they've been found. That's certainly true. Uh,
1: Going back to my Uncle Paul, that was a problem with the public health authorities at the time because while they could find people who had STIs, there was not very much they could do about it in the pre-antibiotic era. They could advise people to avoid sexual contacts, but that doesn't work terribly well. So this only makes sense in a setting where one can do something about the infected individuals and their contacts. So the first part of course is finding contacts, as you said, and that can be very challenging, especially since many of the diseases we're discussing are stigmatizing. So you know, that's clearly true for STIs, where informing the context can lead to really devastating revelations. And TB, tuberculosis, a disease which is controlled in developed countries like ours, largely by contact tracing, it is a very stigmatized disease in many communities. So it's not necessarily easy to find or inform contacts.
0: So in fact, how is that done?
1: Well, there are many pieces to it. The first one is reporting. For many of these diseases, it's important to identify the individuals. And that's done by local and state public health authorities in the US. And they largely learn about infections through mandated reporting. I mean, this is very different from our usual paradigm where we think that medical information should be confidential. But for these diseases, there's often a legal mandate that applies to physicians and or labs to report certain infections, like STIs, like tuberculosis. And when they get reported, there's a public health response, which begins with finding and interviewing the infected individual, or if they're unavailable, members of their families, and to try to find out who they were in contact with. That type of contact, though, varies by infection. Obviously, for STIs, investigators need to find out about sexual contacts. Diarrheal pathogens, though, are often foodborne. So, tracing focuses on the household, but also on restaurants and grocery stores and food suppliers to find out if there's a common source of infection. Respiratory infections are generally transmitted by close contacts, and that means starting in the household. For TB, for example, where there is the best developed system, that generally means identifying and testing members of the same household as the infected person. If they're negative, that's the end of the investigation generally. But if they're positive, then investigators will go out to contacts which are less close, for example, classmates at school or other workers in the workplace and test them. And if they find more positives, they keep on extending this sort of ring system to progressively larger rings until they reach the point where they find individuals who are largely testing negative. You know, a real exception to this is Ebola virus, because almost any kind of contact can transmit Ebola. And so therefore the search for contacts has to be very extensive. And that can be very difficult in areas where Ebola is endemic right now, which include many affected by war.
0: So how can this strategy be applied to a disease like COVID-19?
1: Well, we start with a paradigm. It's not a perfect paradigm, but it's a pretty good one, which is the original SARS outbreak. SARS caused by a very similar coronavirus, and it was entirely controlled, in fact, eliminated by contact tracing, quarantine, and isolation. We don't really have any other measures for uh, this disease. Of course, we had a huge advantage at that time because SARS is transmitted efficiently by people who are symptomatic and they're relatively easy to find. They're sick, so finding them was pretty straightforward. It's much more difficult with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the cause of COVID-19, because that transmits efficiently from asymptomatic individuals and presymptomatic individuals, those people who are going to develop symptoms but haven't yet, and they're much more difficult to identify. The other problem is that by the time we started instituting measures in many countries, The disease was already quite widespread, and that makes contact tracing a lot more difficult, especially in areas that are no longer locked down, where it can be tough to find the key contacts. It remains true, though, that household members are where it starts, and they're the most likely to be infected. But with a virus like SARS CoV 2, which appears to be relatively infectious, there are many more contacts that could conceivably be infected.
2: So, Eric, what you're getting at is really Infectious Disease Public Health 101, something which at times we feel like we've forgotten about in our recent response to COVID. But the way I think about it is, where does a pathogen live, its reservoir? How is it amplified? And what is the vector of transmission? Which is what you're getting at in terms of the principles. And by understanding those principles, then we can invoke public health techniques to diminish the spread. And that's what we're doing with COVID is understanding where's the reservoir, how is it amplified, how is it spread. We've done this for years for the infections that you have noted from diarrheal pathogens with our food improvement techniques to infection control at the hospitals to prevent transmission of hospital-based pathogens. Certain organisms, this doesn't work well for, you know, for example, Legionella, which really amplifies sort of in cooling towers and is not really a person. I'm not the bioreactor for Legionella that spreads it to you. It's the environment and then exposure from the environment. Pneumocystis is another organism where it's really environmental exposure that leads to my acquisition. When we get to those organisms where we humans are the primary amplifier and vector, then we need to understand who has it, who's amplifying it, and how to break the transmission cycle. And I think for foodborne illness, it's easily understood. For respiratory illnesses, it gets more complicated because it interferes with our everyday activity. How do we get to work? How do we interact with each other? What level of precautions are necessary? But that's fundamentally what you're describing and fundamentally what we need to be able to respond to COVID. And your point about SARS-CoV-1 versus SARS-CoV-2, you change one key parameter. I am shedding it to those around me three, four days into illness versus days prior to illness. That one parameter changes And then the ability to respond thoughtfully and control it becomes logarithmically more complicated. And I think that's what we're facing here. And that's one parameter for a virus or two viruses, SARS-CoV-1, CoV-2, that are quite similar in many, many ways, yet different in this key way.
0: Eric, you spoke about your Uncle Paul going from household to household in Tennessee in the 1930s. Have there been innovations between then and now that make contact tracing easier?
1: Um, Well, there's personal armor, which helps with uh, shotguns, but um, beyond that, it's really been rather limited. This is still an intensive individual search for infected people and their contacts, which requires a lot of footwork by public health workers. There have been attempts specifically around COVID-19 to bring technology into this. There are many contact tracing apps out there right now and we don't really know how well they work. The idea of the contact tracing apps is that when someone reports as infected, their cell phone will report to everyone that they were nearby that they were exposed to someone infected. And this can be done in a way that limits the amount of personal information that's releasable. So it can be done in a variety of ways. But some of the confidentiality issues can be avoided depending on how these are engineered we don't know how well they work and part of the problem is how do you calibrate them if you pass by someone on the street briefly and you are both wearing masks the risk is probably negligible for transmission and yet that might be enough to trigger an app depending on how it's calibrated on the other hand spending a lot of time with someone obviously increases the risks spending that time indoors and How much information you put into your app is really going to determine how predictive it is of exposure.
2: I mean, Steve, when we think about innovations, there are mundane and obviously, like Eric's raising, more exciting uses of modern technology. But if we remember back to what D.A. Henderson did with smallpox, the ability to diagnose smallpox was looking at a skin lesion, And the intervention was vaccination and ring vaccination. So the ability to combine identifying who's infected in a timely fashion, early, if not before the transmission period, and then to intervene is what we need to be able to do. And these simple techniques allowed us to eradicate a disease globally. We are faced with a different challenge with SARS-CoV-2 because of the asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic or subsymptomatic state where people transmit. And being able to bring to bear modern technologies such as electronic apps that take advantage of things that many, if not most of us, have in our pocket, like our cell phone or smartphone, is very attractive, but very tricky to apply for the reasons, Eric, you said, and freedoms and Big Brother watching and all sorts of other elements that encroach upon it. But it's also predicated on testing. Do I know that I am positive in a time frame that allows me to do something about it? So if my testing tells me I'm positive today, then apps like this can be brought to bear. If the testing takes a week to come back, it may be too late to intervene. Which for tuberculosis, that tempo may work just fine. But for SARS-CoV-2, a day or two is about the window we have to react to prevent forward transmission, which again speaks to the different infections have different tempos. So we need to adapt and apply the solutions proportionately. I mean, for Ebola, ring vaccination seemed to have played a very valuable role in being able to contain it. So these types of techniques can be applied and retrofitted to modern problems. It just means we understand the biology of the pathogen and apply our tools systematically.
1: Lindsay, I really like your example of smallpox. And perhaps a counter example to that is polio, another disease for which there's a perfectly good vaccine, actually a better vaccine than the smallpox vaccine, a pretty safe vaccine. And yet we haven't been able to eradicate this disease, even though we have the right tools. And that is in large part really because the disease is largely asymptomatic and people who are asymptomatic are spreading it. Now, as a bit of a digression, there are sort of innovative ways of controlling polio. One of them is to monitor sewage for the polio virus. And when you find the polio virus, when you find the real wild type poliovirus, you go upstream of where that sewage came from and you just immunize everyone. And there is a well-documented so-called outbreak in Israel, where actually no one ever was identified as being sick, and yet it was brought under control without anyone getting sick, just by vaccinating a community. So I think that innovation is possible in this space. It's hard right now, though, to substitute for lots of groundwork in identifying those index patients and their contacts.
2: So Eric, the, um, the love of sewage is what two ID chaps would find very beautiful. But you're absolutely right. It's our ability to apply our tools in a way that our society is organized and using modern molecular techniques to look for the sequences of an organism in sewage and knowing that polio is an enteric pathogen that we poop out, allows us to bring those two concepts together to do exactly what you suggest. And that is the kind of innovation that we need to be thinking about going forward as we control infectious diseases in general But the difference with polio is the tempo is not quite the same as a respiratory virus. And the challenge with a respiratory virus is the speed of transmission and the small window to intervene, which means we have to have our diagnostics positioned to alert us in real time or within hours to a day so that we can then invoke the appropriate tools to block further transmission. And that's been such a challenge because we don't have the infrastructure across the country to be able to do that in a kinetically favorable fashion for how this is transmitted.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And there have been some more modern technologies applied to SARS-CoV-2. We previously discussed the outbreak in Iceland and the very careful molecular epidemiology that was applied to that. And molecular epidemiology can be a very valuable tool in figuring out how transmission occurs. But as you point out, it's pretty slow right now. Um, It doesn't give you real-time information, at least as practiced right now. And so it's great for figuring out what happened. It's not so great for figuring out what's going on at the moment.
2: Yeah, and that's the challenge that we as a medical public health community face is how do we take our potential tools Several of which we've discussed, there are many more out there, and actually reduce them to practice to make a difference in transmission. And there are many experiments by academic investigators, public health authorities going on. And hopefully, as success is identified, then scalability will be looked at. And that, you know, as Steve, to your point about what innovations are on the horizon, I hope that a lot of the incubators across the country and elsewhere are being looked at for their effectiveness and their scalability, and then we can figure out how to bring them to bear because that's what's needed to control
0: this. So you've talked about interventions in smallpox and in polio. What about COVID-19? Let's say that you find the contacts. What do you do then?
1: All right, so that's a huge problem. Uh, It's great when we have a vaccine and we know exactly what to do. And that, for example, has really transformed control of Ebola virus, where there weren't such tools and we had to rely on quarantine and isolation. And now we have something else to offer, which not only aids with control, but also aids with the community buy-in. Where countries and localities have taken measures that were aggressive, particularly for isolating patients and quarantining contacts, we've seen that there can be a very large effect. Unless those measures are really pressed though, it's not so clear that identifying contacts helps enormously. And where those are not mandatory, there's a lot of persuasion that goes into this, trying to convince people that it's best for them and best for their community to be isolated or quarantined. That has proven to be very difficult. On top of the resistance that people always find to being told that they are a vector of disease, there has been, especially in the U.S., a lot of societal pushback on how important it is to isolate or quarantine.
2: I think how we elevate knowledge and understanding, and if people are aware, yeah, I mean, if we look at the numbers in the U.S., you know, 500,000 new cases a week, 1,000 deaths a day for the last two, three weeks, those are numbers that are startling and disturbing. And if we're able to educate members of our community about their status of infection and others and destigmatize and enable individuals to realize that they can help the community respond to this by decreasing forward transmission, which gets to Eric's point about isolation and quarantine, and understand that their parents, siblings, grandparents, loved ones with weakened immune systems are at particularly high risk for these complications, then hopefully that will help our community decrease the trafficking that increases the spread. The challenge is when we have a blanket policy for everybody, they think it applies to nobody. And how do we enable people to understand their role in containing and diminishing the spread not only for themselves and their loved ones, but the rest of community. But that's a tough slog because it requires education. It requires education that is meaningful in the context that people live in and the realities that they have to deal with socioeconomically and other challenges. But given the startling numbers in the country, I think we all need to pay attention to that and elevate the discourse around it Because without all of us contributing to controlling this, it's going to be very hard to control.
1: I'd add something on a slightly more optimistic note, and that is, it's double optimistic here. Um, If we have a vaccine, whether partially or fully active, contact tracing becomes a very important part of how to use that vaccine. Of course, if we had billions of doses, we could just go and vaccinate everyone in the world, although we already know that that's very difficult for other diseases. But that would be one way of controlling it. But it's not the most efficient way of controlling disease. The most efficient way is to start with the people at highest risk for disease or for the highest risk of getting ill. Of course, that means people with pre-existing diseases, people are older. Of course, they should be up there in line to get vaccine. But In order to limit disease, we want to be vaccinating contacts. And so identifying those contacts will make most efficient use of the vaccine in order to control the spread of disease.
2: I mean, Eric, what you describe is ring vaccination, which is a kind of strategy that's been used in many different ways to control uh, infectious pathogens, particularly when there's a limitation on the intervention or the vaccine. But I think that the linchpin to a lot of this discussion is the ability to identify infected individuals in real time within a day or two. And that requires continued enhancement of our testing capacity across the country. And then I am not sure that we should think of a vaccine as a panacea. Once we have a vaccine, we're done. I think the vaccine will be layered on top of All the other interventions we're talking about and leveraging strategies, Eric, that you just mentioned, depending on how much vaccine we have, what the efficacy data are, and what's the smartest way to deploy it. But it will be layered on top of the other interventions we're doing until we break the back of transmission.
0: With all of this, how are we doing with contact tracing for COVID 19 so far?
2: I think
1: that depends on where you are, because contact tracing as we're saying repeatedly is part of an ecosystem of control. Contact tracing by itself is not an effective tool without some sort of intervention. And our interventions right now are largely separating infected individuals or potentially infected individuals from the rest of the community. So we can do contact tracing, but if we don't act on what we learn, it's not very effective. In places that do that, and we've talked about them before, places like New Zealand, Places like China in the original outbreak, South Korea, Singapore, these places have been able to show very effective control in certain areas at certain times, depending on how well they implemented it. In the U.S., where we don't really have all of those things in place in many of our states, I think contact tracing has been less successful, not because we can't find contacts, but because we are not able to control disease even when we identify them. So, I think it's something that is important to invest in, but it's only important to invest in as we're thinking about all the other measures that need to be
2: brought to bear. I mean, I think it's difficult to answer your question, Steve, because it's perspective. You know, as we watch the news in the last week with some schools reopening, other schools trying to reopen, and we see in a Georgia school that there's some transmission, and at recent colleges that opened, they've identified cases. Is that a failure? Or is that a success because we identified individuals early and stopped the transmission and are creating a dynamic responsive process rather than a light switch? Yes, no, it works, there is no transmission, which is our tendency. And I think that we need to be more sophisticated than that. We have to have a dynamic response where we can identify cases early through systematic testing intervene so we stop transmission in that microenvironment and then learn from it so we can resume with how to open that sector of society or activity. And I think schools over the next month or two will have a lot of contact tracing and testing information that will be complex to interpret. But I actually think it's a good thing, not a bad thing, that we're identifying things early before there is substantial transmission to be able to intervene and restructure those social circumstances or the social aspects of the circumstances, such as schools. So I would be careful that saying we found cases, that's a disaster or problem. I would look at it as that's actually a success because that's part of what we should be doing, learning from, and then doing it better.
1: I think that's an excellent point, Lindsay. And I'd add that back to the original question from Steve, I'd add that It's very difficult to measure the efficacy of any of these interventions. We're not doing control trials and we probably can't do control trials. We can only compare the experiences of very different places right now as to how effective any of these measures are and that is very problematic. Nevertheless, on the face of it, it's relatively obvious that control measures have worked in other diseases And they would work if we were able to implement them in the best way we can in this infection as well.
2: And I think we as a community have to be careful of painting things as a failure because we identify cases so that we have to get the linguistics right and the dynamic responsiveness correctly that we may change what we do as we get more information. And that's called learning, not failure and that we iterate as a community as we solve this problem for the different parts of society. And I think that becomes a very complex issue with the media and with communication given the fear that's associated with this. And so I think that it's gonna be a a tough fall, but I think as we bring more of these tools to bear, I hope we get smarter in being able to open aspects of society with these techniques while minimizing the risk, but realizing there's transmission, and we have to minimize the transmission while we reestablish some new normality.
1: And to reiterate that, I think it's important for us to say that the ancient measures that were present in Uncle Paul's time and before that actually do work. Quarantine and isolation, that sounds like it's medieval, um, and it is. But the reason that people do it is that it's successful. It's not perfect, as Lindsay is saying, but imperfect measures can have an enormous impact on disease. And I think we want to emphasize the fact that we don't have to wait for a vaccine to really limit the amount of disease. And limiting the amount of disease, even if we don't eliminate it, is an enormous success. So I I think we want to emphasize that we can do this, and it's going to take contact tracing and all the other measures we're talking about.
0: Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.